1: Hold up.
2: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss.
3: All right. Hello, hello, everyone. Very exciting episode here today. Today, I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Dr. Kevin Reese, and Peter R. Hangelsky, who is a lawyer for the firm Emord & Associates, who have been very involved in suing the FDA, actually, many times over many different qualified health claims and other things. So Peter's going to tell us all about that for the first hour and 15 minutes, and then I'm actually including another talk here called Freedom on Trial. This was actually a video and it's quite a few years old, but I shared it to YouTube a couple of years ago and almost nobody watched it. It got like 160 views. But the audience here on podcast is growing rapidly And I definitely think you guys will appreciate this talk big time. A lot of people say they don't like lawyers. But if we didn't have lawyers like those at Emorton Associates who sue the government, then I think the government would actually totally dominate our lives with the ever-increasing rules, regulations, censorship, and other constraints on freedom and business and so on. So people don't like lawyers, but without these lawyers... All we have is the government making laws against us. I really hate the government. And one of the reasons why is because they're always making new laws and legislations which always take freedom away from us. Every single law takes freedom away from us. And this is very important for us in business. We are very constrained about what we can say and what we can't say and what we can get paid for. Before we get into this talk, I'm just going to mention that there are no sponsors here. I have no ads to read to you. There will be no interruptions. But I will plug myself. I do write books and sell books and actually two of my books, at least, are directly relevant to this talk. The first one is my most popular book, Fake Diseases, where I go into a lot of this legal entanglement and how we're constrained and what we can say. As practitioners and what you should know about this language as consumers because the language around medicine and healthcare really dictates how you actually think about healthcare and the way that we're taught about cures and treatments and you know going to licensed medical practitioners when you have a problem that really corners you into one type of thinking and one type of treatment and I go deep into this in my book fake diseases And the other book relevant to this is called Everything the Government Does is Bad for Us. And that's actually my personal favorite book that I've written because I do believe, literally, everything the government does is bad for us, especially in the healthcare system. You're going to hear a lot about this in this talk today. But you can find my books on my website, noticebooks.org. And notice is spelled not us. So that's not usbooks.org. There you can also find the free versions of all of my books. That's the audio and video versions. The audio versions will take you back here to this podcast where they're all posted. And the video will take you to YouTube where I read the book to you. And you can follow along. And on my website, I've got many other free audiobooks that have really helped me in my life. And on notusbooks.org, you can also find all of the links to all of my social medias. Our Instagram pages, YouTube channels... And more. I would also like to plug our other guest here, Dr. Kevin Reese. We do work together. We do promote essentially the same program, except he goes a level further and deals with your posture as well. He's written several books as well, including his newest and one of my favorites, actually, Peace Over Pain. His book, Peace Over Pain, I think is an amazing introduction to holistic health. And you can find that book and a lot of information and even some free introductory posture exercises on his website, peaceoverpain.com. That's peaceoverpain.com. And if you do have a health challenge, you can contact his team at peaceoverpain.com or you can contact me and my team through my website, notusbooks.org. And as I said, it's going to be essentially the same information except... The peace over pain team will take it a bit further. And I think that's really important, by the way. The postural therapy has really helped my life as well. And there's a lot of things that posture will fix that nutrition will not fix. Nutrition will not fix your posture. So if posture is causing a problem, and a lot of you guys listening are truck drivers and stuff like that, you might have a posture problem that will not be fixed by nutrition. You have to do that through postural therapy. Which you can do yourself on your own time, but they show you how to do it. They give you the program. They hold your hand through it. They reevaluate you and update your program as you progress. One last word before we jump in. This podcast has just reached 2 million listens, and I just have to say a big, huge thank you to all of you. I'm pretty sure this recent explosion in popularity from this podcast has doubled my business, doubled my income. I could not be more grateful. And of course, I know you guys get a lot of value from what we post here, and I'm definitely going to keep doing it thanks to your support. All right, let's jump in. Okay, Dr. Kevin Reese, welcome back. And Peter R. Hangelsky, thank you. Thank you so much for coming. I assume most people listening would have no idea who you are, but you were involved in some very, very important cases in our business with Dr. Joel Wallach. He talks about all the time these nine lawsuits that he's had with the FDA, and Mm -hmm. you were directly involved in the litigation of four of them, but you're also familiar with, with the rest of these cases and many other connected cases, as you've said, that's come from these, basically. So I would love it if you could just introduce yourself, and we could jump right into the beginning of all these cases. How did this all start? I mean, it's a weird situation having to sue the FDA for information or for the ability to use certain information. You know, people think of lawsuits in alternative health or health, they might think that the FDA is suing us, but no, it's the other way around. <laughs> so if you yeah, could walk right. us right from the beginning, that would be amazing. Yeah, so yeah, of course. And so by way of
4: background, um. Yeah, I'm I'm a partner in the in the law firm Emord and Associates. Our named partner Jonathan Emord has been um, practicing this space for over, you know, I think it was 35 years now. And we, especially early on, soon after the, the passage of the D.C. Our firm was instrumental in pushing some of these you know, major landmark decisions forward under the First Amendment. And we could not have obviously done that without the help of wonderful um, clients like the Wallacks. Like Ingevity, like Dr. Whitaker, Dirk and Sandy Shaw, these were um, these people were just instrumental in being able to, to to put us where we needed to go. And so the, the cases that we you mentioned, they began in 1999 with what was the landmark decision in Pearson v. Shalala. But it, I think to to sort of explain where those how those cases actually came to be, I just need to rewind time a little bit. More, most people who, who deal with, you know, this, this area of law, they know very well the DCHA, the Dietary Supplement Health Education Act. That was passed in 1994. And before the DCHA, uh, dietary supplements were not its own category, uh, of a reg- they, they weren't regulated as, as, as uh, anything other than food additives. Mm-hmm. The DCHA changed that. So, what would happen in in years past before DSH? If you had a dietary supplement of food, anything really, um, it was reg, it was regulated as a food additive, and that that regulatory framework gave the FDA incredible control over what could be said about foods and dietary supplements. When DCA passed in '94, it gave manufacturers the ability to to you know, increase the amount of what we call claims, but really, it's just health information. That's disseminated about things we commonly ingest. And, and you know, dietary supplements became its own regulatory class, and that opened the doors for um, broader dissemination of information. But the FDA very strongly resisted that. They're an agency that, in, at least in, in the field of foods and dietary supplements, uh, they operate primarily as a sensor, sensor of, of speech, sensor of information that you can you can convey to, cons- to consumers to patients. And they um, very actively resisted the passage of the DSA. They, they actively resisted any anything that came after that fact. Jonathan E. Moore, he sued the FDA in um, in, in the district court, I believe it was 98 or, or 97. And then it, it found its way to the circuit court for the, for the um, D.C. circuit in 1999 and um, that led to a landmark First Amendment ruling in the field of dietary supplement uh, regulation where the, the D.C. Circuit ruled against the FDA on censorship of certain health claims. And you know, looking back on this, it seems crazy for us to think about it, but at issue in those cases were, were health claims that we just take for granted these days. You know, the, the case was about whether uh, businesses... You know businesses like Ingevity, businesses like um, you know any anyone out there who's selling dietary supplements, could they tell consumers that consumption of folic acid would reduce the risk of neural tube defects if taken you know during pregnancy? And that claim is 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 you know almost taken for scientific granted at this point, isn't it? I mean
3: every, everybody knows, every, knows it. Everybody knows. Everyone
4: doesn't. Yeah. You know women are taking neonatals, uh, prenatals rather with. Um, with folic acid for a reason, and and this is why. But the FDA would, would 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 not allow those claims to go forward because they imposed a standard of proof on these claims that was insurmountable. And it was called the significant scientific agreement standard, meaning you could not say to consumers truthful information about what your product would do or what your dietary ingredient would do unless pretty much every scientist in the country would agree with you. But there's no such thing. Science is, is not conclusive. And you know, there will always be disagreement. And there's a lot of truth in science that you, know, you can you can still convey to consumers, and it may not rise to the level of, of scientific consensus. And so he sued, or Jonathan sued, in Pearson. And um, at issue also were, were other claims, um, I think, a- antioxidant vitamins and the reduction of certain cancers, right? I mean... Mm. Um, omega-3 fatty acids and reduction of risk in um, certain types of cardiovascular concerns and heart disease, Um, fiber and its relationship in preventing or reducing the risk of colorectal cancers. Uh, Again, these are claims now that have been in the market for so long, we don't even question them anymore, but it's important for everyone to realize at the time the FDA was actively trying to keep this information from consumers. Mm. And the dc circuit in pearson it dramatically shook up the fda's ability to keep and send this type of health information to consumers and they created what was now known as the qualified health claims regime so under that case you could now if if you had support for your claims you could provide truthful speech to consumers as long as you inform those consumers that the science was was inconclusive. So you had to put disclaimers on your on your statements, but you were at least allowed to tell consumers that this information exists supporting the you know the um, risk reductive effects of these dietary ingredients. And so we went from a state of you know, of almost complete censorship. and overnight we now had this this regime where where manufacturers were able to at least try to pursue these qualified health claims. And so, after Pearson, we had a period where the FDA fought aggressively against that decision. And rather than you know, implement the decision and follow through with it, they put roadblocks up. At, at times, they followed the reconsideration with the court. They refused to abide by the D.C. Circuit's command to consider certain qualified health claims. And that started then a string of additional cases that, you know, I, I'm sure Dr. Wallach has mentioned as part of those nine cases he was involved in. So some of those were at the district court level. The Whitaker 1 decision was a case that that was, we, we basically sued the FDA because they were again refusing to allow the antioxidant claim. And um, the district court in that case had some incredibly harsh words for the FDA and again set... A strong precedent moving forward and then you know we, so i mean it, it, you know we, not, without getting into the details of each specific case i can say that those cases sort of went along the train basically in trying to enforce the pearson decision from 99 and then years later we were involved again with um, the help of longevity and, and dr wallach with cases that we filed on behalf of the alliance for natural health um, USA Division. And those there were two parallel cases that we filed on the same type of grounds where we were looking to enforce health claims or fi- we were fighting against FDA censorship of health claims in one one case related to selenium and its association with the reduction in certain um, types of cancers. And the other case was vitamins C and E and its relationship with, with risk-reductive effects of certain types of cancers. And those cases were also won.
3: Now, you know, when, when you're was- presenting this type of evidence here, because you're you're kind of racing through this here. I just kind of want to yeah. zoom in just just a little bit. I, I love Law and Order, for example. You know, I love seeing Jack McCoy up there, really, you know, tearing a witness, a new one, on on cross examination. Did you know it was wrong
4: when you woke up that morning? Yes. Did you know it was wrong when you ate
3: your cereal? Yes. He's badgering, Your Honor. Sit down and shut up, Mr. Feynman. Overruled. But I'm just wondering how the court proceeding actually is around all these nutrients, because you're talking Mm -hmm. about this standard of proof, and now it's, of course, called qualified health claims, but it's like a mountain of evidence, right? So do you have to literally read all of this out in court? I'm imagining this is a super long process, and these are very detailed studies for a lot of these things. Right, yeah, um, well, so it starts
4: with a petition to the agency where we, we try to supply as much as we can on the scientific, on, uh, from the science. And in every one of these cases, we have the support of incredibly qualified experts. And so you look at the ANH case, for example, on selenium. We had Dr. Gerhard Schrauser and one of the world's foremost experts on, on the, the relationship of selenium with these types of diseases. Your question is it's it's triggering because it, it it's it, it's interesting how the FDA actually processes this information and then how we end up in court based on it. So in these instances, these these two more recent cases, we would I think in both we provided over 120 studies peer reviewed studies that supported the relationship between these these ingredients and disease and what the FDA does with that information is they basically go through and they systematically weed out the science they've decided that rather than deal with the pearson decision on its face they created a construct by which they can actually you know based on you know, often you know, pretextual or, or frankly, silly reasons, unscientific bases, they can just ignore your science. And so in, in these cases, when we, when we would submit 115 clinical studies for 134, I think in one of the case, they would review them and they'd say, well, despite you having all the scientific evidence, we only looked at maybe one or two studies and found those to be credible. And then then that allows them to act as though you have no scientific support (laughs) for your claim because they're ignoring 98% of the the studies that you submitted. Then what happens is we we sue the agency based on that decision, and then that goes to, um, it, it proceeds on an administrative law track through the federal courts. And that means it's a frozen administrative record. So it's not like the law and order. It's not, I don't have the opportunity. I wish I did, but I don't have the opportunity to put it, somebody from the FDA on a stand. These are um, basically resolved on cross motions for summary judgment and are where we're, we're trying to convince the federal district court and then eventually the circuit court that the FDA botched it when when we had the materials in front of the
3: agency. Um So it is possible then to gain a qualified health claim just by submitting the 130 whatever studies. They could just say, okay, you know, actually 65 of these seem super legit. Let's just check this box. Boom, it's in. You have to sue them every time.
4: No, and it is. I mean, obviously, depending on the level of your scientific support, um, you know, the the FDA is going to prioritize human clinical studies, double blinded, and so if you have, it's certainly within the realm of possibility that you might have an incredibly strong scientific record and then you may not ever have to sue. The unfortunate part is that that evidence, especially in the dietary supplement world, almost never exists. So, I mean, there's, and there's reasons for that. and I think that's obvious. I mean, the, the randomized clinical study model, that's very effective for pharmaceuticals and drugs because oftentimes you're testing um against an acute condition. And you can tell whether or not a product has certain efficacy within, you know, this uh, a period of months. But if you're trying to prove that a dietary ingredient reduces your risk of of contracting cancers over a lifetime, um yeah, you know, how do you design a study that can be conducted to measure that with, you know, and, and also have reliability? So yeah, some folks have tried. There have been some famous studies along the way, but yeah, overall the level of data that fda is trying to impose on the dietary supplement and food world is really impractical so, and so meanwhile not, cheerios are allowed to say heart healthy on the box <laughs> right, right because they're certainly right because they, they there are you know obviously um there's certain types of claims that can be made by regulation that that folks have carved out based on you know nutritional profiles so, they can say things like that, of course, right?
5: And they, uh, use, they use the word may in front of it, right? May lower cholesterol.
4: Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. And
3: then you have those types of claims, right? Those are the health claims. So, just before uh, I let you jump back into the story, I just kind of want to point this out. This is like truth by trial here, right? Like, it's like they're deciding that for nutritional information specifically and drug information, but this is in the public domain, nutritional information, they're limiting... Us, anybody selling anybody practicing you know with people or whatever, they're limiting what we can say based on the truth that has been determined by a tribunal, whereas this really just isn't imposed on so many different industries. you know, I'm thinking about cars and stuff, mm-hmm. you know it's a life or death situation in cars, but you know what they can tell you on a car commercial is it seems to be limitless <laughs> without legal ramifications, you right. know, but here uh, it's it's just it, it's so restricted, you're right because like you said, the standard of proof thing is a really weird concept. I've heard the argument like, "Oh, we shouldn't be able to say that uh, you know taking selenium will lower your risk of this cancer by this percent. We shouldn't be able to just say that because people can't necessarily understand the intricacies of how we get to those statistics. You know it is based on each studies and and the regular person doesn't doesn't read the deep study and all this stuff, so it's improper to just give them that statistic. Meanwhile, the news and media and all, they use statistics all the time. And they misuse them all the time too. And we do, I believe that in the free market, people should be able to look at statistics the way they're presented by media, by someone like me, a salesperson, a physician. And you can choose also to look deeper into that. And you can choose to understand statistics. And maybe we should all understand statistics a little bit better. But my point here is that The truth is tangled up in these statistics (laughs) and it can be complicated but there's a heck of a lot of it out there and if the fda rejects you know uh, over 100 out of 130 right off the bat then you know we're extremely limited here on what we can discuss what we can talk about what we can say on products about products what we can even imply that products are being used for and all this stuff it's There's no other industry like it, to my knowledge, that is actually this restricted. Acupuncturists can say all kinds of things, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's fine. It's fine. And if you want to fully believe the tarot card reader, that's up to you, you know, but the FDA is not on them. Anyways, I just kind of wanted to jump in there and say how (laughs) kind of crazy this is.
4: Well, I mean, you get into the space and you you learn. I I think the average American doesn't have any clear understanding of just how um, really unconstitutional the administrative system is. Um, And you see that with the FDA because it is an agency that's its primary function is that of censorship. And and when you look at just how lost First Amendment protections have gotten within that framework, it's shocking. And I think, you know, we we have we have new attorneys that come on our firm and. They have various beliefs of this and that, and they and they spend a little time just uh, trying to understand how the administrative law works and how the FDA works, and how frankly unaccountable they are to the judicial branch. And it's it, it, you know it it is an eye opening and shocking experience for most people. The more you learn, the more shocked you get. And and that, by the way, what you what you were just referencing was an argument the FDA actually made in the Pearson cases, which the D.C. Circuit rejected. It was this concept that the FDA knows better than you. They know better than you as to what you should be, ta- you know, as a consumer, what, you, what what information you should have a right to receive. They need to act as, in this paternalistic sense, to protect you from information that you might not be able to fully understand or appreciate. And the D.C. Circuit was was very harsh against that position and, and Nick Scoria of the FDA and said, we are highly dubious of any distinction like that that, that is built upon the supposed ignorance of consumers. You know, we obviously have argued time and again that consumers should have the right to receive information. First Amendment is a, is a two way street. It's not just people think of it like it's, it's the freedom of speech, but it's also the freedom to receive speech. Um, and when you stifle that, when you stifle some, but when you act as a censor, you're, you're affecting both sides. That's where I think massive injury happens. And and so, you know, the FDA, we can talk, of course, about FDA's mechanism to regulate, and they attach it to commerce, which is why in some instances, physicians and practitioners have a little more leeway in what they're able to say. But it's still, I mean, I think it's still one of the biggest impediments um, that the dietary supplement and food world faces when they're looking, you know, from a marketing perspective, they have to still operate within this this regime that the FDA, you know, obviously you know, strictly enforces.
5: Now, you, you mentioned freedom of speech, and the other day when we spoke, we talked about social media, mm-hmm. and you had mentioned to me that when you're not promoting a product specifically on social media, in other words, you're not holding it up and being like, blah blah blah, then you become just an. Inf- it's freedom of speech if you're not doing a product directly, but if you do a product directly, you're now in the gray area of a salesman. Is that correct?
4: Well, right. Maybe not even gray area. Um, you know, it might be directly regulable. Um, but the idea is, I mean, as, as somebody who's, who's presenting medical and scientific information, you have a first amendment, right. To speak on those topics. And it's not until there's a commercial component to your speech where, where you start to get into Um, spheres where the agencies can regulate in this in this context right i mean obviously you know not all speech is protected but um so if you're if you have a commercial component to your speech if you're directing people to um a website to purchase let's say if um you know if you're holding you know products up as you're speaking or providing links to, to product purchase pages i mean that's an example where the speech that you make would be construed by the FDA as, as being commercial. And, you know, there's a, there, because of that commercial component, they would have the ability to regulate perhaps. Um, but where you're not doing that, where you're acting purely in the informational world and you're, you're speaking on, you know, at, as, as a podcast host, or you know, as, as an authority, as an expert, perhaps on a, as a guest on a, on some kind of a talk show, or otherwise, if you're just speaking, um, your mind, that's unquestionably protective speech, and any effort by the agency to regulate that would be problematic.
5: Mm.
3: And very- it doesn't happen very often, to my knowledge, either. It's kind of this hollow threat that's always there. Everybody's scared of saying the wrong thing on stage or on social media, but to my knowledge, I don't know anybody who's been actually prosecuted for, charged for, other than like Kevin Trudeau for his claims about uh, weight loss and his weight loss book, he's he's a big name but i just he's one of the only names i don't know if you know any peter and any other people who have been prosecuted for making health claims or false health claims
4: prosecuted really no because i mean there there are certain instances where the fda obviously the fda has um there are criminal um components to the fdca yep the the act um but rare are criminal uh, prosecutions particularly not on this type of issue we have obviously there are folks that have sold unapproved drugs are uh, in certain instances there's sales of unapproved drugs for significant conditions like cancers that that there have been prosecutions based on that most of everything else CFD is going to do in the dietary supplements generally in the civil sphere and a lot of what they'll do involves um, initially it's it starts with agency enforcement activity You know, or if you really offend them, or if you refuse to comply at that level, then they can sue for injunctive relief in 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 federal court. Um, That can lead to things like you know quarantines of product or you know injunctions prohibiting you from speaking and prohibiting you from selling product. Um, But those are definitely rare examples because usually folks will curtail their activities in response to the FDA when they come
5: knocking. Well, this day and age they can just turn the switch off meaning they just call the bosses of Facebook, the bosses of Instagram, the bosses of TikTok, and they just cancel.
4: (laughs) Very common. And I I mean, and, and they'll shut off, you know, your, your main avenues for revenue. I mean, Amazon.com will, will, um, will product pages left and right um, to the extent that you're doing anything that can be perceived as in violation of federal law. And so, you know we we deal with that often, we're trying to restore access to those types of retail channels, and it all flows from the FDA's censorship regime. And so you know as long as that's in place, and as long as the FDA has the ability to take these positions and everyone else follows suit. All right.
5: Yeah, but what about defamation? Can the AMA or FDA come after you know someone speaking out on social media? for defamation i mean
3: they're not a person though
5: right right
4: right i mean can an aggrieved person pursue a claim for defamation of uh, well that right i mean obviously you know i always say i mean we live in a litigious country people can seemingly sue each other for almost anything these days but you know the the question always is will they succeed In, in that space that you're you're uh you mentioning there are incredibly high burdens to any type of defamation claim, and those are imposed by the First Amendment doctrine. And so, you might have heard of constitutional malice, New York know, Times standards. There's there's protections in place that prevent somebody when you're speak from from facing liability when you are talking about an issue of public importance or you're talking about a person who's in the public sphere. But technically, if you're on you know social media or otherwise, and you are talking about a private person. And your, um, and it's not on a, a significant issue of public importance, then they they could potentially sue for defamation. You know that that is an option available to people who can agree with, Yeah.
5: Well, one of the things that comes to mind to me is just as an example, let's just say statin drugs, right? Mm-hmm. Now we're typically of the belief that statin drugs are no bueno, right? Mm-hmm. So you go on social media and you say this. And there's a lot of doctors and health professionals saying it now. They're speaking out
6: mm-hmm. that
5: statins were a bad idea, blah, say, blah. So at what point do the alphabet boys, <laughs> at what point do they say, you're an influencer
2: mm.
5: and you're influencing random people to stop taking their drugs? Mm. And that's bad.
4: Yeah, I mean, again, so scientific speech uh, also has its its own special protections under the First Amendment, and so any effort to try to curtail that activity would, is deeply problematic. And um, and, they, and anyone, and we've seen that. I mean, it's you know, yes, the government tried in, during times of COVID to stifle a lot of you know, a lot of um, you know speech, similar speech, but. Um, a lot of the, t- the the real limitations didn't even come from the government. they came from um, you know private parties like, you know, like those who own social media. And so that's a different equation because that's not governmental conduct and so you know constitutional limits aren't you know, well, it's at least less clear that any any protections apply there. But when the government would be involved in speech that you're making, for example, again they need a, they need some kind of a regulatory hook and so they need, they need to act under their commerce laws authority if, if that's you know available to them. So if you're saying those types of things and they deem that to be inappropriate and it's related to the sales of certain types of goods, then that's one thing. But if you're just talking um, as a medical professional or somebody who is you know, um, conveying health you know information, then at that point, without a commercial book, the agency could be powerless, and they should be powerless. Right. And so there's that's the distinction, commercial connection.
5: Hmm.
3: I, I have uh, some questions about the Whitaker cases, if you'd like to uh, yeah, go there. First of all, who is Whitaker and why was he or she suing? And one of those cases was about uh, Saul Palmetto, wasn't it? Saul Palmetto and, and its influence on the prostate. Yeah, I do. I do think I
4: can't tell you, you know, there was there was a series of Whitaker decisions. I don't recall which specific one. Um, But so doc, Dr. Whitaker is um, um, a uh, alternative care pr- provider. And he was in, in California, and he had a, a very successful practice. And uh, he therefore, because he also not unlike Dr. Wallach, he had a lot of patients who he treated and his desire was to try to you know obviously spread the dissemination of information related to, to helpful products that could help his patients and otherwise and so he was the name plaintiff on those cases there were actually i think um, a series of them you know, a lot of the, those who participated in the pearson decisions but be, you know, the cases is named because he was the first named plaintiff and you know so dr whitaker was one of the sponsors of that lawsuit and um, it started with Whitaker One, which was focused on the antioxidant claim, which was related to, to you know, risk reduction of cancers. And it, from there, there was a series of those that um, that followed. In each instance, the, the cases that followed were a direct result of the FDA simply not doing what the court had instructed it to do in the Pearson cases, which was to try to you know apply reasonable disclaimers. To the claims that could be um, appear on
3: product labels and websites and whatever else in commerce, and so they won. They won the case, and then the FDA just didn't follow up and didn't like give wording to the claim. Well,
4: in right, in in, in, simply put, yes. I mean, what they would do oftentimes they would they would play games, and so what they would do is they would try. So what Pearson commanded the agency to do was to consider reasonable disclaimers. So said you can't ban the speech outright, but you need to fashion reasonable disclaimers that will tell consumers that this the the, the claim is, is potentially truthful, but that the scientific evidence is not conclusive. And the the circuit court said it's not our responsibility though to draft those disclaimers; that needs to come from the agency. So what they then did was they they played with the language of the disclaimers, and then when when you see what they were proposing, they were the most cumbersome you know disclaimers that they could have possibly drafted and they are all but swallowing the benefit of the claim so we had uh, litigation over the nature of those disclaimers and whether or not the agency was actually still trying to ban the claims through um those cumbersome uh, disclosure requirements and we continued
3: to win now if you flip this concept around like we all know watching like a drug commercial on tv especially in america it's got like Five seconds of, hey, this, this drug, whew, I'm doing good on this drug. And then there's like 35, 45 seconds of all the side effects. Now, that <laughs> seems reasonable to me in the sense that those products actually do produce harm. Those are actual potential side effects of using this product. Might be a good idea even to display safety records of different products, mechanical products. But in the case of nutrition or in the case of something like saw palmetto, which is not a nutrient, it's a medicine, either way. We're not looking at lists of side effects here, you know. Their right. disclaimer is about like, hey, this maybe maybe sorta isn't true. We don't know. The science is complicated. You know, they, that's what you're kind of telling me. It's like a paragraph of like, oh, I don't know, and this might be good for you, but I don't know. But it's that's not a harm. That's not a side effect. Yeah. That's not a warning. You know, warning. This vitamin may not fix all of your problems. Like, so what? It's, it's a product that's fundamentally good for you, and and you know, you're saying, and we know that within these cases there are mountains of evidence you know of benefit the argument isn't that there is a benefit or absolutely no benefit the the argument is over the quantification of the benefit you know how much percent risk reduction and all this stuff i know it's tricky to frame a claim like this really a uh, 38 reduction in this cancer it only makes sense in the context of that one study it's it really yeah logically can't be used as a broad claim but very mm-hmm. few of us speak that way anyways. We use a whole bunch of these, like Dr. Wallach in his presentation, he'll use like 40 different studies, throw them all in there. Hey, this study right. showed a 40% reduction on this by using this nutrient. Then they added in vitamin E and then they got a 70% reduction on this. You know, you you add this up to make your own conclusion that this is, it seems to be freaking beneficial, right? And we make, oh, the, of course, we bring the idea in that, hey, when they use more than one nutrient, more than three nutrients, you get even better results, but my point in just jumping in here was that these the censorship by consensus here is fairly ridiculous considering there's really not harm. You know, you, you would know how much harm there is from drugs. There's all kinds of adverse events reports, which is another official thing that needs to be filed. Many, many, many thousands of people die from drugs every single year. This just simply doesn't happen with supplements, even in mega doses. You know, whatever the FDA yeah. says, you can take tens of thousands of percent of their recommendation right. in most cases and just be completely fine. Not a detectable thing happened at all, except you might feel better, have some more energy or something, maybe get diarrhea. Who knows? But nothing, nothing actually risky. Uh,
4: there, yeah, the, uh, there's there's a tremendous gap in the data um, showing, you know, the prescription drugs and otherwise being your most harmful agents. And obviously, dietary supplements have a, a tremendous history of, of safety. And that's that is one of the, the leading, you know, points that you make. I mean, look, diet you take a dietary supplement, there's nothing works for everybody. Uh, we're all different, right? I mean, and and, and so you know, there's no guarantees and and, and and by the way, drugs don't either. I mean, a lot of times if you look at the data for uh, for these drug studies, I mean they'll prove drugs that have efficacy efficacy rates that are sometimes, you know, well under fifty percent. And it all depends on what you know, the risk profile and the analysis of the FDA reaches. But the point is, if, if, I, if, if there was a, even a 30 or 35% chance that taking a dietary ingredient over the course of the next 10 years would, let's say, you know dramatically reduce my risk of, of, of contracting colorectal cancer or something like that, I'm, I, I should have the right to at least try that. And I won't even be able to if I don't have access to the information to be, make an informed decision. And realistically, the only risk, the, the only the only harm that I'm facing if, it, if I take a product and it doesn't have that effect for me is that I'm out the money that I spent on the product because you know, in all likelihood, these dietary supplements are not going to be toxic, um, right? I mean, the adverse events you see for a lot of dietary supplements are, you know, we, we monitor these, we look at them, they're very often Um, attributed to misuse, um, or, you know, there's certain types of supplements that have higher safety profiles, as you might expect. I mean, there's, you know, energy drinks, for example, but most dietary supplements are incredibly safe. And unless dramatically misused, meaning used beyond what, you know, the directions of use say or otherwise, they're not going, you're not having any any real risk to consumer safety. And so that's what makes it a real gut punch when you, when you think about, the extreme level of censorship that consumers face. They don't even understand what they're not, what they're not receiving because there's so much information out there that only the most informed consumer is able to, to really, you know, to track down. And that's why it's just, it's a difficult market from that perspective.
5: Yeah. The behind the scenes scheme, some sort of meeting going on behind the scenes with suits, you know,
4: yeah, people need to take, you know, they have consumers have to have some serious initiative in this day and age to be able to to, to uncover information. Oh yeah, um, which isn't accessible to them, and it, you know, it's. I'm a, frankly,
5: I'm a, yeah, I'm a great example because, uh-huh. so I have a PhD, and because I market myself as Dr. Reese, I get nailed on social media by people who are very traditional. Mm-hmm. And so they throw the whole you're not a medical doctor thing.
4: Mm-hmm.
5: Right? And and so my response to that is it it I, it doesn't matter. If I just called myself Kevin Reese, it, it would be the same information, just like Ryan. Ryan Ryan Alexander, like he doesn't need a doctor in front of his name to to spell proper information. And so because it's a PhD, it somehow psychologically. Rub some people, traditional people, the wrong way, and they're all like, you know, <laughs> you're practicing without a medical license and you're this. And I'm just talking about nutrients, you know. Right. Yeah. That's very that, weird.
4: Right. I mean, that that's you know that's that's how uh you know the FDA is not the only agency that regulates that speech. I mean, the Federal Trade Commission does the same thing, and they have guidances that that address. Um, you know, all kinds of, of social media speech and otherwise. And, and, and these are the things that people talk about. They talk about, you know, protecting consumers from misinformation from somebody who might, you know, try to speak with an air of authority that's unearned or otherwise. And, and I mean, in, in, you start, in a true free market, the idea is that dissemination of ideas is what the, it should be the goal. Um, that, that more information, not less, is always beneficial. And so whatever you're saying, whatever, if somebody disagrees with that, if they have a disagreement about it, then they will have a scientific basis to explain why you're wrong, and then consumers
3: benefit from that discourse uh, from that public debate. Um, the- People are allowed to disagree, correct? This is like this is within right. the law. We are allowed to disagree on these matters that require interpretation of information. it it is difficult to parse all this apart you do have to interpret it and we are allowed to disagree i thought this was how the market worked right but it's not with the fda it's
4: how it should work but then you have agencies like the fda like like the federal trade commission whose their their whole existence is built around preventing that level of debate from happening on some levels right and so you know that that has a stifling effect throughout and it, and it puts us in a position even where we're, you know, on this call where, you know, where, where, where Kevin is, is wondering where the line is between him just, just speaking on a, on a podcast with no commercial interest. Um, that should never be prohibited under the law, right? There should never be any concerns. And the fact that we have people that are worried about, um, justifiably worried that there could be some government enforcement is a chill on the First Amendment rights that is just an unfortunate byproduct. But that's what we just constantly fight the agency over, and you know, I know Jonathan E Moore, myself included, are um, steadfast in our in in our in our uh, mission to try to make sure that we can open up markets and and have these types of freedoms of speech actually enforced.
3: Well, you said earlier that many times people will just censor themselves, uh, not those exact words, but. I was going to say, I definitely censor myself all the time. You know, I even refuse to answer questions about vaccines, for example. And uh, it's not because of government, like you said, it it isn't. It's actually a problem with social media. I think, uh, you know, the government has definitely uh, uh, basically endorsed the practice of medical censorship, especially basically by not doing anything about it, seemed to encourage it, especially during the pandemic. That's when I first started noticing links to government sites about their information about covid and about vaccines right it was during the pandemic i never saw social media slap a government link about any health information on on any of my posts before i've had them taken down my i've mm-hmm. never had that slap on it so yeah definitely we we censor ourselves in response to that some people didn't and they're okay just getting their account taken down and put back up again but this, I, this I is got, my livelihood that we're playing with right i can't just disappear from social media so i have to censor myself
5: i they, i got it, i got slapped for a tampon
3: No, he's been in big trouble for this tampon thing. Big trouble for this tampon thing.
5: All all I said is tampons may potentially, that's the key word, potentially cause endometriosis. Mm -hmm. And I've been ferociously attacked for the last week and a half. And Instagram put a big flag on my video as if I was talking about vaccine. Oh, okay. And the USA Today reached out to me for a quote.
4: I see. Yeah, I mean, the, <laughs> the, the, the official position that FDA would take is that they don't regulate the practice of medicine. And, um, you know, they, they, they love to say that. But but what the government does, is they set a medical orthodoxy. And that's routinely enforced throughout, not just by the, the positions the FDA takes in support of drugs and, and approved devices, but also based on you know CMS uh, Medicare regulations and carrier determinations and everything else, all of that combines to basically form, like I mentioned, this this you know this this medical orthodoxy in the country that is based on um, you know whatever the government you know sort of says from the top, and and so anything you tend to say that's against the grain of that, it's susceptible to to criticism, of course, and I can't even tell you how many of our clients have come under fire for. Um, doing nothing other than expressing opinion um, on scientific and medical issues. And it just it's such an in, in, intrinsic threat to the rights we have in this country where that becomes the norm. And, and it's it's shocking to see, but I mean there are you have rights if it's if obviously if it's a, if it's government um, it's sponsored that yeah, if it's an enforcement related to that, then obviously you have constitutional protections. And there's sometimes private claims involved as well against private actors that are trying to censor depending on depending on the nature of, of what they're doing. But I mean it's it's a it's a rough place we live in at this point.
3: And um, you know, obviously, you know, our hope is that things change.
5: Mm.
3: Are there any other agencies involved here with these lawsuits? Is it always just the FDA? There's no CDC involved or anything like that, no other branches of government.
4: No, not not CDC. I mentioned the Federal Trade Commission, um, and they're they're actually very active in enforcement in, in the health and wellness um areas. And and the FTC, they um have broader authority to regulate um uh, speech than probably the FDA even does because they regulate almost all forms of advertising. So um you might have of, you know, some kind of component that is not necessarily regulated by the FDA, but it, it could be regulated by the FTC. The Kevin Trudeau example is an example, right? Um, you know, Kevin Trudeau was publishing literature, books, um, you know, systems, health systems. Um, that's not necessarily FDA regulated in that context, but the FTC can regulate that based on what he's saying about that material. But the big concern we also see, and this is something that everyone in the space needs to be aware of, is the state level litigation. And so you have consumers and basically you have a cottage industry of of zealous, you know, uh, plaintiffs, attorneys throughout the country, especially in hotbed uh, uh, jurisdictions like California who are. When the FDA, let's say the FDA sends a warning letter or the FTC um, initiates some kind of um, cease and desist proceeding, those consumer plaintiffs are just going to sue in state court because they'll claim violations of unfair competition laws and basically on the same theories. So, yeah, I mean, so you have have concerns all over the place.
5: It's on the state level where we could get hit with the practicing without a medical license, right?
4: You, yeah, and a lot of that's right. We've had clients that have um, licensed and unlicensed folks that have faced um, proceedings before state level medical boards because of things they have said. And we had, you know, we had clients that uh, you know had high profile you know interviews on on major networks and faced um, immediate backlash from local medical boards. And, you know, obviously we were incredibly successful in being able to navigate those waters for those individuals because, you know, we we have powerful first amendment arguments in response to that, but it doesn't stop the fact that you're exposed to that. And there's costs that are, that are attendant to those, those proceedings. And so all that has a chilling effect because, um you know, there, there's a, there's a percentage of people that would just rather not speak, right? And then, and, and as soon as they make that decision, the First Amendment violations happen.
5: Hmm.
7: Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
3: FlushCare.com/slash/weight_loss. Now, Peter, to my knowledge, this this insanity doesn't really apply to foods, correct? Like, it's a lot looser. You talk about the various benefits of foods, and I mean, it's all kind of just understood that like you take this information or you leave this information. Nobody completely agrees with food. Every government has a different recommendation for what the perfect food is. You know. But we don't, we don't have yeah. these same limitations. You can't sue me over what I'm saying with food. I could say well, everybody should eat fruit all the time. That's, yeah. that's well, legal for me to say, right? It could
4: be. Uh, and and this, is, this is the issue. I mean, this is how people need to understand how, how it works with the FDA. So the example I, I give people is always that you take, take a glass of orange juice, right? Um, let's call it like a shot glass of orange juice. Depending on... What you say about that orange juice, it can be regulated as a food. It could be a dietary supplement if you're t- telling people you're supplementing diet with vitamin C. It could be a cosmetic if you're telling people to pour it on their hair and, you know, it's going to somehow bleach their hair or something in the sun, I don't know. It could, be, um, it could be a drug if you're telling people that, you know, injecting the orange juice into, you know, a tumor is going to shrink the, the, the tumor. So this all goes back to what we call the intended use doctrine under FDA. Mm. Um, FDA regulates products based on really what you intend they're used to be, not necessarily what they are. So the exact same product, the exact same chemical formulation, the exact, you know, it can be regulated entirely differently based on what you say it does. And so again, going back to the commercial component, if you're selling, if you're selling fruit and you're selling it, um, you know, like a certain type of grape, let's say, and you're and and uh, you're you have an internet business and, and you're providing that if you're just saying hey this is fruit eat it because it has good nutritional nutritional value and you know it's a healthy alternative something else go, you know you're fine but if you start making health claims about those th- those fruits it's entirely possible the FDA can come to you and say depending on what you're saying you might be selling an unapproved drug like the mm. word treatment right Take, you know, you're saying eat eat this fruit because it's going, if this, you take this specific fruit and eat it in a certain amount and quantity, it will um, prevent you from um, contracting certain illness. You do that and and it it would, it theoretically could be classified as a drug by the FDA. And it's, and that, that is, sounds crazy, but that's how the FDA operates.
5: I, I think it's significant to note that going back to the Kevin Trudeau thing, his book that got him in trouble has the word cure on it Mm -hmm. (laughs) so i think that's very significant we don't we stay away from that word. we don't use that word yeah and and he ran infomercials so this is back to what you were saying about when it becomes commercial now you're in dangerous territory
4: yeah and kevin's you know concerns um you know obviously especially with with the ftc and early uh, early on i mean they they related a lot to what he was saying about the book and how he was advertising and marketing it and what he was promising consumers, not necessarily about the speech that was contained within the book itself. Um, that's an important distinction in most instances because literature is unquestionably, you know, it's, it's going to be protected. And, and so the, the government had some restrictions on how they could go after him. But and that's a fascinating, that that, that entire Circumstances fascinating to, to watch it unfold all the way up through Seventh Circuit and otherwise.
5: Well, there's another one, another famous case in the 1980s with a man named Dr. Savy, mm-hmm. who, as far as anyone knows, never earned a doctorate. He just called himself Dr. Sabie. He was running ads saying that he could cure HIV and other things. Mm-hmm. He ended up in court and he brought his testimonials into the courtroom. And they let
4: them go. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean we we've I've you know I've obviously been in the courtroom with in criminal prosecutions of practitioners that are that are essentially accused of you know a lot of times it's it's promising things they can't deliver. A lot of times you'll see these actions against practitioners because they're they're misrepresenting the nature of what they provide. So I mean it you know false and, and misleading speech the government would say is certainly not protected um so if they can say that something you're you're doing is false and misleading then it would lose its constitutional protections and fraud is also something the government can pursue against people so it's not hard for them to say well if you're promising somebody a cure and that cure doesn't exist or you can't actually establish that you can you can deliver on what you're promised um then yeah i mean the liability flows from that um i,
5: I get all my clients on video mm-hmm. all of them <laughs>
3: The funny thing is, I agree with the cautious language, and I think that uh, it helps uh, the image of professionalism and and the actuality of professionalism. I think that's the professional way to speak. You know, I think it's a telltale sign of an amateur when they're making broad blanket statements, like, if you just do this, this will work absolutely for everybody. No, anybody who's been working with people a long time knows every case is just a little bit different. There's surprises. Surprises can happen. There's things that can change things. There's nothing that just automatically works for everybody. Just doesn't, right? Sometimes right. even the 90th century nutrients, sometimes it's actually something else that's causing their problem. Sometimes it's a root canal infection or something. There's other things that can matter, right? It's just, you can't, you can never um, truthfully say that this one thing will prevent, definitely prevent this in everyone. It just, it, health doesn't work like that. So speaking more realistically actually teaches people how to expect all this stuff. So I, I don't have a problem with the actual language that we're forced to use here. You know, mm-hmm. I don't mind supporting and promoting and maintaining and repairing as opposed to treating and curing, it does make more sense. It sucks that the average person is seeking treatment and seeking drug-like solutions and uh, seeking a cure when it doesn't make sense. You know, you don't have diabetes. Mm -hmm. Diabetes is a process. It's not something that you possess. It's not something inside of you. It's something that's happening. It's a verb, right? Your diabetes in is more appropriate to say, as Ben Fuchs, pharmacist Ben Fuchs Mm says. So... Uh, where are we at now, then, with all of this? Like, So there's all these cases, the, the Whitaker cases, the Shaw cases, the Wallet cases. We've gotten many qualified health claims over the years. Obviously, the FDA still has to justify its existence and still has to uh, accept right. drugs and, and do all this stuff. It still has to reject claims. I guess that's its job, <laughs> to reject mm-hmm. the claim and go to court. I don't know. But right. what kind of litigation are, are we seeing in more recent years? Like That selenium one you mentioned, I think that was back in mm-hmm. 2013 if i'm not wrong and that's 10 years ago so what's been going on yeah. since
4: yeah i mean so we've, we've we've entered this period where i mean for the most part a lot of the litigation that we've been we've been confronted with are i mentioned the state unfair competition angles where you've had the biggest threats to certain types of industry has come from these state level actions whether they're in in state court or federal court um home the, the practice of homeopathy is under assault right now um and and a, a big um reason for that is because of the state level actions that have, that have been raised in recent times and some of them still pending right now and so we our practice has been focused an awful lot on trying to um trying to focus on reform and and um and defense of those types of practices. the state level court and from the FDA side, we've been trying as best as we can at opportunities to push back on the you know, I alluded to this before, but it's the FDA calls it the evidence-based review system, right? The EBRS. And that's what the FDA uses to evaluate science when you know, for foods and dietary supplements. It's what they use to screen out all of the truthful and beneficial health information when they're when they're evaluating things like health claims and structure function claims and, and other types of, of uh, things you might want to say. So we've been, you know, efforts have been made to try and push back against that. We, of course, um, you know, major change often has to come through legislation and we're aware of that. So, um, you know, there's, there's always efforts, you know, undergoing through that, um, you know, our, our name, our name partner, <laughs> I'll give them a plug here. Our name part Jonathan Emo. He's running for Senate in Virginia right now. And uh, you know, very, you know, we're very excited about that. And we we love what that would mean, what's what success would mean for the entire industry because of um you know, having someone like Jonathan with his voice in Washington. Um and, and so we we put our full support behind that. But um it's important for people to understand that every day is a battle, even if there aren't um, these watershed cases that are that are you know, proceeding, um, you know, through um, the upper levels of the federal judiciary, we're still fighting these battles every single day on, you know, at lower levels in the courts and um, constantly battling the FDA on enforcement proceedings um, and trying to be um, that barrier between um, the Constitution and and the agency. And so it, it it's 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 exhausting at times, but you know, we continue to have a lot of success. So we're we're hopeful. You know, we have a
3: a strong court um right now at the Supreme Court level in um What do you mean strong? Like is it in favor of a lot of these pro speech consumer things? The court is um in favor of drawing
4: down and drawing back on certain doctrines that the agencies have historically used um to run roughshod over industry. And so you know, recent decisions, you've seen the um, West Virginia EPA case that came down on, on under the major questions doctrine. Um, it was you know, case interpreting the Clean Air Act, but statements that were made and, and, and the holding of that case is a strong indication that the courts, the federal courts are no longer willing to just rubber stamp administrative decisions. And that's always been our problem. So, so you're, you're sitting help- there like, we got 130... 130- Cases so right stamp now so and and that's exactly right. So what would happen when you go to the federal court and, and you're appealing an administrative decision? In years past, they would say we don't second guess the agency's fact finding. So you know if you come to us with an issue of law, that's one thing. But if we don't, we just defer to the agency on on their evaluation of the facts. And any lawyer will tell you. You know, even someone in law school, if I get to write the facts, chances are I should win every time. Right. And so if I don't have a court that's willing to actually look at the agency's fact finding, if they're not going to actually question what the agency did with the science, then it makes it very difficult to prevail. But now you have these doctrines that are we have we have hope for the future because of the way we think the federal courts are likely to start whittling down on doctrines the chevron doctrine is another one you know which which deals with deference to the agencies and so it's just the beginning now but we're hoping with with judges on the bench now like Gorsuch, for example who have historically been you know against the regulatory state in their scholarly writings and their decisions you know we we look to what where the where this precedent could go five ten years from now and it, and it it seemed we, we were optimistic.
5: So, Peter, because I'm in the state of Connecticut, it would make sense for me to retain a lawyer in Connecticut, right? Because of the state board. Yeah,
4: yeah, you would need. I mean, and everybody, lo- local local representation is is really important, especially when you're dealing with with those those issues, like gun authorized practice, of medicine, state state medical board issues. It's, it's definitely something that, you know, you, you want to have consultation with, right? Um, you know, when we litigate our firm, oftentimes we're able to litigate in different jurisdictions because there are rules that are that allow for, you know, admission for one matter or so, but we don't, we don't practice in multiple states other than where we're actually licensed right. for state-level issues so yeah it's it's always advisable to reach out and have counsel whenever you have these questions,
5: and what kind of counselor it, there's so many different types of lawyers so
4: if you have it depends on the question so if you have if you have concerns about let's say uh, you know, somebody you know unauthorized practice in medicine or um, you know, something that would be within the purview of a medical board or any kind of licensing body, then there are lawyers that specialize in disciplinary actions before those medical bodies and so and, and actually, sometimes they're pretty easy to find because they you know, advertise those that experience. And um, you know, you, you would find somebody who's experienced in um, assisting someone with, let's say, a disciplinary complaint, whether it be board of optometry, medical board, right, dental board, whatever it is in that particular state. Somebody has experience doing that. Um, if it's advertising related, if it's something that um, you know concerns you know more business um, toward or consumer um, protective issues, then you're going to find a lawyer that specializes in litigation related to those types of claims. And we have, obviously, you know, our firm has, has has partners all throughout the country that we work with and we refer people to all the time. So uh, yeah, I'll uh, welcome anybody who has any of those concerns They can always call us and we can, we can put them in the right direction to someone who can help.
5: Yeah, that would be good because I, I think one of the key points of this Entire recording to me was that it's at the state level that we really need that protection. The, the alphabet boys aren't. I, I feel like if anything, they're just going to go to their friends at Facebook. They're going to go to their friends at TikTok and behind the scenes be like, "Shut this guy off, please." Mm-hmm. Yeah,
4: when you find yourself in trouble, it depends. You, you know, you 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 react to where it's coming from, and and you seek uh, counsel based on circumstances oftentimes and this is what our practice deals with when when you find if you can find yourself in compliance with the federal law then that very often is insulation against the state level issues as well so it's sort of you know yeah, you know, meeting, meeting those those higher standards at the federal level can can help you and so when we have we have sort of two different components to our practice we have a compliance practice where you know we, we help businesses and, and individuals comply with federal laws and regulations mm. and then we have a litigation practice where we help put fires out when people may get in trouble for that so
5: that's yeah. a beauty of a whole firm you you get the whole yeah, yeah. totally makes sense yeah get licensed in connecticut please
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah we've been over to connecticut um i mentioned i think when i last spoke uh, I, at least once i know in recent times but um that's where I'm 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 originally my I'm born and raised in White Plains, New York, so
5: Ah, okay.
4: Yeah, we have we have attorneys who are licensed in New York
3: and we're over there every once in a while.
5: Okay. All right.
3: I have a question about the uh twenty twenty stuff. Um so <laughs> Government came out, made a bunch of claims. I know that most of the censorship actually happened on social media, which is private companies technically doing what they're allowed to do. You're allowed to censor on your own thing. I'm allowed to censor on my own. If I had, if I owned YouTube, I could censor it too. Maybe I don't want pornography on it. All kinds of things I don't want on it. You know, so right. we can we can always argue about the lines of what is appropriate to censor. And if you don't like a platform censorship, you can use another platform. These platforms are free. Cannot complain that much. But my real question is. Legislatively, was anything done about free speech around COVID because of COVID? Was any anything new introduced about the way that we can speak about treatments or drugs or anything? Or was this literally just social media, just censoring people for talking about alternative ideas on what's going on or alternative possible treatments to it?
4: Yeah, I, so I I think um, you know I, I wouldn't quote me, but I do remember that there were some legislative efforts initiated to try and address these types of issues. But really, where but none of, none of those actually matured in anything that you know would would be worthwhile. Where there was some movement was in recent times, there were suggestions that the the Supreme Court might whittle away at the protections that these social media companies had under the Communications Decency Act, that which Gave them complete immunity for pretty much anything they they did with their um, user-generated content. I mean, I think most people are familiar with you know that Section 230 liability in CDA. It's what companies like like you know the YouTube and Twitter's of the world they always hide behind that when they when they either choose to host or not host certain content. And when they started serving in the role as, edit, you know, editorializing basically and choosing what content to actually display versus what not to display, banning people and whatnot, there was an argument that they they might have been stepping beyond their immunity under the, the Section 230. And there was hope that the Supreme Court might actually um, address that this term and might actually whittle away at those protections. And that would then be, okay, one step, as I mentioned, you know, in... in are building this wall one step in the process of trying to have better, you know, better precedent across the country. Unfortunately, based on what's been reported, the oral argument didn't seem to be going very well. um, And it doesn't look like the court might actually address those concerns this time through. But legislatively, that's what you would look to. You have to start taking away or addressing you know, the immunities that some of these these companies would be able to assert when they take action to censor people, uh, for example, or they choose to editorialize content or otherwise. And people on the other side of that would say, well, that that could have really big ramifications under the First Amendment. We should definitely not do that, right? I mean, we should make sure that these companies have full reign to choose what they display otherwise. Anytime you whittle away at protections, it, it gives people channels to sue based on content, and that could have a chilling effect. Um, but the bottom line is, unless there are unless there are avenues to actually you know go after those private companies for their speech speech censorship, really is what we're talking about here. Then you you face a problem because as private actors, they can do whatever they want, and you know there's no breach of contract claim you're going to be able to mount against them because their terms of use and otherwise are so um, friendly to the to the you know, those companies.
3: In such it's such a, a strange situation. If you block half the side of the argument, you you literally drive the culture and you drive the leading opinions. And, yeah. you know, whether this is true or not, it just like whether either side is true or not seems completely irrelevant to me. But I, I understand it's not completely the government's fault. It is social media. I don't know if there's some larger conspiracy there. You know, collusion between uh, media, social media, and government. It seems to be at least they all believe the same things and are all agreeing what to do about it which censor quite a lot of it so you're saying they yeah. tried they tried to put forward legislation here to limit speech but they failed
4: well it's i mean the problem you have with with everything is that there's always you know there are unintended consequences to everything you do and there's there's arguments on both sides of the coin like, for example you know the, the fcc used to have um regulations that would require you know, people to provide um viewpoint uh you know equal equal airtime the people that had um on both different sides of a particular controversy otherwise and i mean if you think about it if you're if you're somebody that operates any kind of a media outlet or otherwise um you know cnn's fox news is i mean it's it's difficult to try and argue that they should be forced to to sponsor speech that they don't agree with and so if, if somebody like, you know, who, who own you know, obviously you know, now Elon Musk or somebody at Twitter or otherwise, you know, they decide that, that certain speech is in, in conflict with what their core goals or values are, um, do we have a system or should, should the First Amendment require them to endorse speech that they're not comfortable with, right? And you can obviously see the argument brewing there. So, but whatever is going to happen here, it's pretty clear that it probably needs a legislative solution. And whatever that legislative solution looks like, it has to be very carefully designed to be able to balance these competing interests. Um, We just haven't seen that yet.
3: Well, I think we've covered a a pretty good range here of of this topic. Oh, yeah. I'm really, really happy you came here. Thank you again, Peter. Um, I just have a comment here. You mentioned homeopathy. Mm -hmm. And to me, this is just another case of like... What harm, you know, why would anybody be against homeo- homeopaths, in my opinion? Like, they're so harmless. I also know it can be extraordinarily helpful, if not the thing that fixes some people. You know, Dr. Glidden, for example, he'll look you straight in the face and say that homeopathic remedies have fixed some of my hardest cases. And I've met several other homeopaths who'll say the same thing. So they recognize that it's not a cure-all for everything, you know, but when it works, it works, is what they say. You can right. believe it or not. And to me, like, the whole thing against homeopaths for, as far as i can tell is basically about false hope you know let's shut down this whole branch of medicine because it may cause people to not do the regular chemotherapy or whatever you know they right. give them give them false hope in this one thing false but uh, to right. me, I get I get it's subjective I get, though i
5: get hit with that all the time i just wanted to throw that out there yeah all this the is
3: so subjective i mean is anybody uh it's suing matt damon you know for giving them false hope about bitcoin or you know jim kramer's allowed to go on tv and and tell you to buy into silicon valley bank right before it collapses i mean false hope is all over the place this goes back again to the intelligence of the person it is up to you if you put all your money in bitcoin and it's not matt damon's fault but false hope homeopathy who cares no one's dying from homeopathy never ever
4: yeah you know, it, it it parallels the the sort of you know right to try um, efforts that you know in laws with when it comes to certain drugs. I mean, I think that the point is that you have just a massive amount of um, you know people in this, that 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 want homeopathic remedies. They they understand what homeopathy is, and they and they and that's the you know for whatever reason that's their preferred course of treatment, um, and. You know why would the government stand in the way of people making informed choices with what with their with their bodies? You know, I think that this is a deeper conversation, perhaps. But you get into the, the state of you know where we are with medical autonomy, right? Especially when you saw things that, what, what happened during COVID, mm-hmm. uh, and you know this this echoes that. I mean, somebody's right to 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 be able to choose a, a specific um, medical modality that they think is effective for them. There's. We live in a world where information is available now. You know. Yes. There's misinformation, but there's also easy access to to you know reliable sources of information out there that people can, can make decisions for themselves. Um, what basis does the government have to come and step in and say we should more or less eradicate this this you know this type of product from the market, which is effectively what the FDA is trying to do at this point.
3: I have one more one more for you here <laughs> because homeopathy, it's kind of considered the deep end. Well, uh, the pool gets deeper. I talked to a doctor a couple of weeks ago who, in all seriousness, he treats people by writing hieroglyphs. Egyptian hieroglyphs. Straight up. This is his treatment method. And, you know, he's not bashful or shy about it in any way. He has extreme confidence (laughs) in what his hieroglyphs can do. I'm not laughing because the thing itself is funny. I'm laughing because I know how extreme some of these metaphysical treatments and methods, I know how extreme they can be. The most miraculous things I've ever seen and heard of happen in the metaphysical category of things, Mm -hmm. the energy categories of things. This is beyond nutrition. This is beyond medicine. I'm wondering, is there anything legislatively constraining metaphysical practitioners on the same level as someone using a physical compound such as a homeopathic remedy or if any any supplement or anything like that are metaphysical practitioners are, are they regulated in the, in the law at all do they have anything to do with the FDA cuz it's not a product right
4: well sure i mean they'll you know even at the at the state level they'll you know that what if what they're doing is diagnosing and treating medical conditions they're they're likely practicing medicine under whatever state medical act would apply in their jurisdiction so you have limitations that, that come from that and there are carve outs in all the different states, right? I mean, for for different types of practices within that, in you know, California, you know, nutritionists and otherwise. I mean, they they needed legislative solutions so that they could do that without being deemed to be you know unauthorized practitioners. And so you have that at the federal level. They would probably not be regulated per se unless what they're doing is you know involves the sale of certain types of things or the use of some, of regulated devices or otherwise. And so. There's potential hooks for federal regulation, but oftentimes where you see that regulation is at the the local level.
3: Interesting. Well, I think I'm out of questions for now. Honestly, I, I would love to go in and deep dive each individual case step by step, point by point. I would love to even see the case files and nerd out on it. And uh, Not just the wallet cases that we've heard so much about, but these other cases, too, the Whitaker cases, the Shaw cases and, and others. Uh, it's, it's great stuff. It's great information that is used to make these claims. Like, I mean, we should all know this. <laughs> we should all know. Yeah. And, and that's the great thing about these qualified health claims, actually, when they do get granted, when we do have them, you know, being able to say that. Supplementing with omega-3 essential fatty acid can lower your risk of heart attack and stroke or thrombosis, right. various thrombosis. The, the fact that you can you can know that is fantastic, but I'd also like to dig into the uh, presumed mountains of data that went into securing that claim and I think it's a great thing that we end up with these things. It's a bit of a bit of a convoluted process to get there and I don't think we necessarily need the FDA, but once it brings us to a place where we can agree, that selenium lowers your risk of cancer, for example, or folic acid lowers your risk of birth defects in the form of neural tube defects, or that omega-3 protects your heart. I mean, it's great. Now we have this information. Hopefully it stays protected. Peter R. Hangelski, thank you so much. I'm uh, not imagining that too many of our listeners will be needing this specific type of legal Mm -hmm. uh, representation anytime soon, but just if you could tell us in closing where exactly uh, can they get in contact or see... Uh, your firm, and do you guys do any other types of cases? Oh
4: yeah, we we um we do a lot of uh, business litigation, usually involving these the same types of areas. So we do a lot of false advertising defense, Lanham Act cases, um, which are really you know competitor cases. We do a lot of components to that. Um, we defend unfair competition cases in in various states. Um, you know, I'm licensed in California and Arizona, and so we we're often in court there. Um so yeah, anyone want, you know, I I really truly say this and I mean it. I hope nobody needs this type of help, but if they ever do, we have a website emore.com, www.emord.com. Um and we have offices in in the DC area and here in Arizona for the West West Coasters and yeah, I mean we're we're happy to we're always happy to 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 talk with anybody, you know. We, 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 we have free consultations all the time. So, you know, I'm happy to
3: chat with people about any, anything that might come their way.
5: Fantastic. We'll be chatting.
3: <laughs> so uh, this is actually my last question. It's a very small question. You said that in book form, all speech is protected. Amazon might ban me, but legally I can call my book. Doctors cause dementia, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, it,
4: it's, it, you're, you're entitled to your, to express your opinions in literary works. then and especially when you're talking about issues of public importance like that um your your um, protections are at their zenith
3: well that's fantastic i've consulted with a lawyer if you want free law advice you just start a podcast that's what i'm told (laughs) dr reese you have any closing remarks
5: no i'm just i'm just happy that we had this this talk it's very very informative very enlightening very necessary
3: yep Mm -hmm. necessary is the word necessary is really great thank you both thank everybody else for joining us we'll see everybody next time yeah thank you guys for having me well that was a really enlightening talk for me and i hope it was for you as well and now as promised i'm going to share this older recording of which i'm not a part but i think it's really important it's called freedom on trial and i hope you enjoy it
6: (laughs) Welcome to Freedom on Trial. I'm Terence McNally. In an ideal world, we could walk into a grocery store where signs would inform us that omega-3 fatty acids can reduce the risk of heart attack, or that calcium can reduce cancer risk, or that glucosamine and chondroitin sulfate can reduce the symptoms of osteoarthritis. Men could be made aware that saw palmetto extract can reduce the symptoms of benign, inflamed prostate. Yet, at the very point of sale, The Federal Food and Drug Administration stands as a roadblock to truth. Those who would be most motivated to inform the public of these studies, the manufacturers, distributors, and sellers of nutrients, have actually been banned by the FDA from doing so. These FDA policies, which may have been originally intended to protect the public, in fact violate the First Amendment, our guarantee of freedom of speech. Those who want our country's independence believe that the duty of government was to protect the freedom of people to make their own decisions. That free and open discussion was the best guarantee against the dissemination of false information. The Constitution was amended so that freedom of speech would be forever guaranteed and never could be abridged by government. A dedicated group of medical, scientific and legal professionals, all advocates of free speech, have dedicated themselves to ending FDA censorship. In the Whitaker v. Thompson decision, the U.S. District Court ruled that the FDA could suppress a claim only if it was backed by little or no scientific evidence, and even then, only if the claim was misleading despite FDA disclaimers. The FDA continues to ban claims on the treatment effects of dietary supplements. Here now, Freedom on Trial presents some of the key figures in this ongoing battle for freedom of speech. Those who have given tirelessly of their own time and money, courageously fighting to end FDA censorship and force them to comply with the First Amendment. They've won four landmark cases against the agency, but much remains to be done. A pioneer of alternative medicine and founder of the Whitaker Wellness Institute, founder and past president of the American Association for Health Freedom and an officer at the American College for the Advancement of Medicine. Dr. Julian Whitaker has been a prominent national advocate for freedom of informed choice since the early 1970s. A protege of Linus Pauling and Nathan Pritikin, he's the editor of Health and Healing, cited by Time Magazine as one of the top ten health newsletters in the country. He was also lead plaintiff in the original Whitaker v. Thompson case against the FDA censorship of the antioxidant vitamin cancer risk reduction claim. He is now uh, lead plaintiff of gang in another Whitaker versus Thompson case, this one against the FDA's refusal to allow a truthful treatment claim for Saul Palmetto extract for the symptoms of benign prostatic hypertrophy. It was a mouth It was, it was. Uh, Dr. Whitaker, could you tell us what's happened since the first landmark Whitaker versus Thompson case?
7: Well, let's go back another 10 years uh, because this is based upon the Pearson Shalala. Back in the late 80s and early 90s, the FDA censorship of truthful claims for vitamins and minerals was so rigid and severe that not only did they not have claims on the bottles, but there were regulations whereas books or even scientific articles had to be yards away from the purchased area. So we have come a tremendous distance when it comes to allowing truthful claims on vitamins and minerals, which I don't think most people realize. Uh, Vitamins and minerals, even today, are one of the few consumer products that doesn't tell you anything on the bottle as to what it's supposed to do. It will tell you what's in it. It will tell you how to use it, how often to take it, but it doesn't give you any information to speak of or what it's supposed to do. Uh, the, this censorship of the vitamins and minerals has been eroded away substantially by the legal prongs which are now 12, 13 years old. Do these same restrictions make it difficult for them to list um, contraindications and drug interactions on bottles? No. I think the essence of the problem uh, revolves around the fact that nutrients cannot be patented, yet nutrients can have a substantial health benefit, but because of their lack of patent, they're not part of the pharmaceutical industry. Now, the pharmaceutical industry is virtually 10 times the size of the nutrient industry, but nutrients could and should compete with pharmaceuticals for health care and for disease treatment. But they can't because people cannot get the information as to how to use them. So I think freedom is something that is absolutely required, particularly freedom of speech, for a culture to continue to advance and unfold. We have a vigorous protection of speech precedent, yet you can't tell the truth about the quality or how vitamins and minerals can can improve your health. If you get truthful information about entities that are available to to purchase, then you enter in a competitive marketplace, and the competitive marketplace is always best served by more information, not less. It was clearly known in the mid-80s that supplemental folic acid, that's folic acid taken in a vitamin pill, not in food, in a vitamin pill, would substantially reduce the likelihood of women having a child with neural tube defects. As a matter of fact, the public health department stated that use of folic acid would be comparable in its value to our society as the salt vaccine, considering the frequency of this tragedy and how and the level at which you could prevent it with folic acid. The FDA blocked that information for years, and it was only because of political pressure that finally that information was made available so the tendency for the FDA to block useful information does put people at risk it prolongs people's illnesses it doesn't give people the right information to to make the accurate choices about their health.
6: And what we're talking about here often is prevention of problems so it's like were you to take these nutrients and supplements you might never incur the the problems or the
7: expenses? Well, uh, I treat patients with symptomatic heart disease with the very same things that I'd recommend people to do to prevent heart disease. The same with diabetes, the same with high blood pressure. Uh, we forget that by allowing these nutrients and lifestyle changes to alter the metabolism in the system, you can reverse our diseases because most of our diseases are lifestyle Uh, caused in the first place. And here we have these lifestyle choices that are based upon information that people can do to actually treat disease. So um, it is not just for the prevention of disease that we're interested in. There are many uh, nutrients that can have treatment claims that don't have valid treatment claims because of FDA restrictions. And this is about calling the government to task when they are violating the restrictions that are set down in the Constitution. This is about an industry that has some very valuable products that can't tell their consumers what the products do. This is about freedom. You cannot have cultural advancement without freedom to communicate. This is why it's the number one amendment to the Constitution. You have to have discourse. You have to have free flow of information. People in this country think we have freedom of information because you can burn the flag. But they don't realize that the FDA has restricted by prior restraint truthful information about nutritional supplements. That has to stop. That's what we're fighting.
6: The lawyer who successfully argued the Pearson-Whitaker cases is also here with us. A constitutional and administrative lawyer, Jonathan Emord carries the unique distinction of being the only attorney to defeat the FDA on First Amendment grounds four consecutive times in federal court. He's been representing Pearson, Shaw, Whitaker and the other plaintiffs in their fights against the FDA since 1993. Jonathan, could you tell us a bit about the history and the significance of these landmark legal cases?
8: This is all about freedom. This is about the basic freedom that we all have, the freedom to communicate nutrient disease information about foods and nutrients in foods. It's important for people to understand this information because it enables them to make informed choices in the market and to help their health and improve their longevity. Uh, but the government has been in the business of suppressing this information, censoring it, and has done it since 1999, since before that, since actually for the last 70 years. But in 1999, in the Pearson v. Shalala case, the government was told that it could not suppress this information, that it was protected by the First Amendment. So this battle is a battle about freedom, and it's a battle about freedom of speech and protecting the ability of people to receive accurate information about how nutrients affect disease. Now there's another case pending, Whitaker, Whitaker 2 we call it, Whitaker versus Thompson, in which the court is being asked to determine whether the, the a nutrient can make a treatment claim, whether there can be a treatment claim about how a nutrient affects a disease. The FDA is again in the business of censoring the information, and yet this is again the most basic of information. In this case it's saw palmetto. The question is, uh, does saw palmetto reduce the symptoms of BPH? and the science is overwhelming that it does. Yet, unfortunately, the Food and Drug Administration is in the business of censoring this. And so here we are again, fighting for freedom again. But this is a historic struggle, because it is the battle for people's civil rights against a government that is rapacious, interested in taking those rights uh, from the people for political reasons, to protect interests that are adverse to the interests of freedom of speech. And that's why we're in this fight.
6: A question that I have is, what is the law under which the FDA feels that they can do this?
8: Well, it's all bureaucratic. You know, we start from the premise of the First Amendment, that people are entitled to receive accurate and truthful information. That people are entitled to communicate that information. The government starts from a different premise. It starts from the premise that information can be dangerous that information if allowed to be disseminated even if true can cause people to take actions that may not be in their own best interests but our first amendment starts from the presumption that information that is true may not be suppressed under any circumstances and the first amendment trusts in the individual to make the determination what is in his or her own
6: best interest so what we're talking about here is actually truthful claims backed by science
8: yes there's an overwhelming amount of science supporting these claims they've been vetted thoroughly by the FDA in most instances the FDA really isn't engaging the science really isn't attacking the integrity of the science they're simply saying in the first Pearson case that we demand near conclusive proof which is almost impossible in an area of nutrition almost impossible in any area of science Yet conclusive truth is not the First Amendment test of what may be communicated. Accurate information may be communicated even if it is not conclusively proven true. And so it was that the court agreed with us in Pearson v. Shalala and determined that the FDA did censor truthful and accurate information and that the resort, proper constitutional resort for the FDA, is not to censor speech that's true, not to prevent people from having access to truth, but to rely on a disclaimer to accurately characterize the level or degree or quality of support for it. Well now FDA having lost that fight is on to the business of censoring information that pertains to how a nutrient affects a disease more directly. The question is uh, can the FDA get away with censoring a claim about how a nutrient treats a disease. And here the FDA once again without the benefit of science is taking a knee-jerk position of preventing the information on the real basis that they don't trust the American citizen in using the information. They think that people will harm themselves if fully informed. And this is antithetical to the core values of our First Amendment.
6: Now, it's my understanding that the Deshaies law passed, I believe, in 94. The idea that many people have is that that made this this break between pharmaceuticals, and nutrients and one could make treatment of disease claims and one couldn't um, obviously the courts have disagreed with that how is that law affected by these court decisions
8: well it was actually the the uh, nutrition labeling and education act that created a provision that said that health claims could be made for dietary supplements they carved out an exception from the definition of a drug to allow supplements to make health claims and health claims were described as any relationship between a nutrient and a disease FDA has tried to circumscribe that definition to limit it to only prevention claims at first they tried to ignore the existence of the provision and to allow no claims but Pearson destroyed that effort on the part of the agency with the hammer of the first amendment and now we're in the situation where they're saying okay We have to make prevention claims, but we're not going to allow you to say that a food treats a disease, that water can treat dehydration, that would be illegal. Or that prune juice can uh, treat chronic constipation, that too would be illegal. Even though these things are undoubtedly true, you can't say them. And in the case of saw palmetto, it's no big secret that saw palmetto can reduce the symptoms of BPH. There are millions and millions of men around the country, many of whom get it from their doctors. Who are taking this and experiencing these uh, physiological benefits yet you cannot lawfully say that in the marketplace i mean we have to open the marketplace to truth and the government is in the business of preventing that from happening so as long as there is a need for information to be communicated about these things we will be there fighting for it because it is not a battle that we're going to give up It's not an opportunity we're going to let pass by. We live in this generation. We want to see these changes now. And we're going to do the best we possibly can in achieving these objectives. No matter how long it takes, we'll be there to fight this battle.
6: Charles B. Simone, M.D., is a world-renowned cancer specialist. He has advised on or treated cancer for such prominent Americans as President Ronald Reagan, Vice President Hubert Humphrey, Congressman Peter Rodino, and many others. While at the National Institute of Cancer, Dr. Simone made significant discoveries in the areas of nutrition, immunology, and cancer. He is a pioneer in the area of integrative medicine, combining the most effective of conventional and alternative modalities in the treatment of cancer. He helped organize the Office of Alternative Medicine at the National Institutes of Health and helped write the DeShay Act of 1993. A strong advocate of the freedom of informed choice, Dr. Simone has testified repeatedly before Senate and the House in areas of health, FDA reform, and alternative medicine. Dr. Simone, why are the Whitaker and Pearson cases so significant to the scientific community and the general public? Because
0: once we can give information to people, we can actually prevent diseases from ever happening and thereby not even have to treat them. For instance, two of every five Americans in our country will develop cancer. Two of every five will develop heart disease. The good news is that only 7% of these cases are genetically related. So that means that nutritional factors, smoking, alcohol, things like that, are the ones behind all these illnesses. 60% of all women's cancers, 40% of all men's cancers, and 75% of all heart disease is related to nutritional factors. This is a big thing. This is good news. We can prevent cancer. We can prevent heart disease. We can do so by simply changing lifestyle factors and adding nutrients to our diet, like antioxidants, B vitamins, and calcium. The problem is... 50% of our population have one, two, and usually three marginal deficiencies of vitamins. In addition, there are groups of people in our nation that have deficiencies of nutrients simply based on what they are, alcohol drinkers, three glasses a week, people who are on diets, teenagers, elderly people, people who are constantly uh, watching other issues like osteoporosis, things like that. So we need to find out ways of informing them properly and bringing in nutrients. We know that antioxidants can actually prevent cancer. There's no question about that because antioxidants themselves, supplements, will decrease the initiation and promotion of cancer. How do we know that? Well, there's a huge database for this. Let me give you one example of one major study. Our people from the National Cancer Institute here teamed up with the National Cancer Institute in China, studied 30,000 people gave them three nutrients a day. Beta-carotene, 15 milligrams, vitamin E, 60 units a day, and selenium, 15 micrograms a day. Not very big doses, and a short period of time, five years. And the results were astounding. After five years, there was a decrease in mortality in general by 9%. There was a decrease in risk of cancer by 15%, and there was also a reduction in cataracts and stroke. Now, What about the person with cancer? What can we do about that person? Well, we can actually decrease side effects of chemotherapy, radiation therapy, increase the response rate, and increase lifespan in patients who take antioxidants with their treatments. Astounding information. We know that antioxidants can actually help cancer patients a great deal. For instance, 9,000 patients were studied, 6,500 patients had an increase in lifespan. All 9,000 had a decrease in side effects from chemotherapy, radiation therapy, and there was a higher response rate to boot. So antioxidant supplementation needs to be used in cancer patients.
6: So are there other conditions for which antioxidants have that kind of value?
0: Tremendous information. We know that antioxidant supplementation today can decrease the risk of angina, hypertension, cancer, cataracts, many of the neurological diseases like Lou Gehrig's disease, Alzheimer's. We also know that antioxidant supplementation can increase IQs in kids 5 to 10 years old. We can also increase the memory and decrease aggressive behavior in children who are aggressive bullies. Dramatic. If we can properly give information to the American public or citizens across the nation, uh, we can actually decrease the risk of diseases, extend life for people who do have uh, problems, and also the quality of life. Freedom of information is critical. Dollars saved in prevention is going to outweigh anything about freedom uh, inhibition.
6: Doctor Simone, if you could sum up for the audience the, the the key message that you have to give, if we can properly disseminate information to people, we can prevent cancer,
0: we can prevent heart disease, many other illnesses, we can extend the life of people with illnesses and improve their quality of life, and at the same time decrease the dollar, health care dollars that are being spent, wasted today.
6: Steve Wallach manages operations, sales and marketing for Wellness Lifestyles, a leading designer and manufacturer of dietary supplements, many of which are developed by his father, Dr. Joel Wallach, widely known as the Mineral Doctor. These supplements are distributed internationally through American Longevity. Both Wallachs are advocates of free speech, and they've filed numerous health claim petitions with the FDA to ensure consumer awareness of the health-enhancing and disease prevention effects of nutrition. In fact, they're spearheading new litigation against the FDA to secure First Amendment protection for the right of manufacturers and marketers to distribute scientific studies to consumers. Steve, what effect has the FDA censorship had on manufacturers and distributors in the U.S.?
2: The effect has been that the general public has had a lack of truthful information to make an informed decision on these healthful nutrients, and so it has kept people from being able to make informed decisions and purchase nutrients
6: that would potentially be beneficial to them. You distribute internationally, correct? We do. Is there a difference in how other countries treat this sort of information? There is. Uh, For
2: instance, in Australia, we're allowed to make essentially what would be a health claim or a treatment-type claim right on the label.
6: We're not allowed to do that here. And so the information is, is harder to get. Um, the idea of scientific studies, what is the restriction currently on... We're talking about accurate information, right? Absolutely. Essentially, the, the
2: restrictions now, per deche through the FDA, we're not allowed to disseminate even scientific uh, studies or literature that we know to be truthful in conjunction with the sale of dietary supplements.
6: So, Steve, as a manufacturer and distributor, what is the key thing you feel needs to happen? The key thing
2: that needs to happen is this information, this truthful information, needs to get to the consumer. It needs to get to the general public so they can make an informed decision to better their health. In other countries, we're able to make this information available to the general public that we're not allowed to make here. And this information, in the freest country in the world, needs to be available to the general public.
6: Pioneering scientists in the field of aging prevention, Dirk Pearson and Sandy Shaw co-authored the number one bestseller, Life Extension, A Practical Scientific Approach, as well as The Freedom of Informed Choice, the FDA versus nutrient supplements. They've been advocates for free speech and against FDA First Amendment violations since 1978. Together they spearheaded the landmark Pearson versus Shalala victory over FDA censorship. Dirk, how did you come to challenge the FDA on the grounds of the First Amendment?
9: Well, back in 1968 when we started studying aging mechanisms and ways of intervening in them to extend the human lifespan, what you could do was limited by what was known scientifically and that wasn't a whole lot back in 68. By the time we wrote our best-selling book Life Extension A Practical Scientific Approach in 82, the limits were actually what the FDA would allow manufacturers of products to say about them and of course if you can't say what a product does there's not a whole lot of incentive to spend a lot of money developing a product that works. So we needed to do something about that FDA violation of the First Amendment which is preventing life-saving information
6: from Getting from the scientists and the manufacturers to prospective customers. Mm-hmm. And so when you first you came up with that idea, let's go after him on First Amendment, was it easy to find a lawyer?
5: Yes, the next problem was to find a lawyer who would be somebody who would not only be knowledgeable about the First Amendment, but who would also be interested in this kind of a case, passionately committed to this uh, sort of a case, because we knew it would take a long time.
9: Well, in fact, we wrote a book to to help find that lawyer, Our uh, FDA versus Nutrient Supplements, Freedom of Informed Choice. One of the major functions of that was try to find an attorney that knew First Amendment jurisprudence, commercial speech jurisprudence, and had the courage to take on the FDA. When we first talked to Jonathan over the phone, he said, well, you know, how far do you want me to go? Most of my clients, they're having some problem with the FDA, and they, they want some administrative reinterpretation to ameliorate a particular problem. They don't want to get the FDA mad at them and then destroy them. You know, this is going to make the FDA very mad at you if you assert your First Amendment rights. And, for and we the,
1: said, good, we want our First Amendment rights. And if we have to make the FDA mad at us, too bad.
9: <laughs> and uh, that's exactly what we did. We, we went we went for the carotid artery. And <laughs> uh, <laughs> we, uh, we, we decided that you know what we're going to try to do here is establish that the First Amendment applies to the FDA. And believe it or not, an FDA attorney actually tried to tell a, a federal magistrate that the FDA didn't think the First Amendment applied to them. And that is really scary. The idea that part of the Bill of Rights doesn't apply to part of the federal government—that's what you call fascism.
6: Okay, let me ask you on that first, Pearson versus Shalala. What was uh, what what claim? were you uh, contesting? When
9: we filed the suit in 1994, for example, on the omega-3s, the fish oils, there were 174 published papers on the subject, all of which we introduced into evidence. 170 of them supported our position that you can actually reduce your risk of a sudden death heart attack with a couple of servings of fish per week or fish oil capsules by about 50%. You take fish oil capsules every day or eat fish every day, you can reduce it perhaps as much as 80%. Mm -hmm. In fact, after the U.S. Court of Appeals told the FDA that the were unconstitutional, the FDA announced they were to continue enforcing them. Now, our attorney said he hadn't seen anything like that, I mean, just defying a court like that since roughly the Civil War.
6: I think it's very strong that you're making the case that it's about freedom of speech, but this isn't just freedom of speech, because the, the, you're also talking about almost freedom of good health.
9: Yep, that's right. Most cases of cancer could be prevented with adequate changes in diet and lifestyle. And if people knew about this, it would make a real difference. Uh, The FDA really tries to suppress anything about dietary supplements being good for anything.
5: The FDA is the great barrier right now that stands between us and the opportunity of immense medical improvements. Right now and in the
1: future.
9: If if a person were able to make truthful, non-misleading claims about uh, dietary supplements, there would be a tremendous amount of research on using them for treatment. And uh, we would have a lot less expense and a lot more competition and a lot more innovation and a heck of a lot more research being done in this area because people would be able to cash in on
6: it. I'm standing today in the nation's capital, just a few short blocks away from the Supreme Court to date. FDA has refused to abide by the lower federal court's decisions, stating that FDA's actions violate First Amendment rights. And so we have sued, and will continue to sue. Slowly but surely, FDA's regime of suppression is crumbling. However, it's a large agency and has very strong allies in the drug companies and in public interest groups. But I know our firm, and I know our clients. We are here for the long run we will never stop fighting to protect our first amendment rights a health revolution has been spawned by these momentous legal victories but clearly much remains to be accomplished john f kennedy once said we're not afraid to entrust the american people with unpleasant facts foreign ideas alien philosophies and competitive values For a nation that is afraid to trust its people to judge truth and falsehood in an open market is afraid of its people. Sadly, the FDA has not taken heed of these words. However, these champions of constitutional liberty can envision the day when FDA censorship has been eliminated and all Americans can make fully informed decisions in their quest for health and longevity.
3: All right, I hope you enjoyed this talk as much as I did. Remember that we have much more information about these topics, health and freedom, here on this podcast, Notice and Friends, and on my website, noticebooks.org, of course, spelled not us, not usbooks.org, where you can find our YouTube channels and Instagram pages, where we post extensively on these topics. And that is all I've got for you today. I appreciate you. Until next time.